So, for the next one, Brad Petrin from Notre Dame. Welcome. Okay, I have a handout of my presentation. I think Caleb had given a few people a copy when he, they came in. If you don't have a handout that says uh, traces of or the synoptic chronology in John on the top front of it, raise your hand and uh, we'll pass that out. I'm going to be going through a lot of texts, and so it'll be, I hope it'll be helpful to, to follow along. I'm sorry, I'm a visual person, so I like to be able to see it, and PowerPoint puts me to sleep, so I'm going old school here with just a regular handout. Okay, how did Jesus interpret his death, rethinking the date of the Last Supper in John? Introduction. Traces of the synoptic chronology in John. With regard to the chronology of Jesus' suffering and death, most contemporary Jesus research presents the debate as a simple choice between two options. On one hand, the synoptic chronology, in which the Last Supper takes place at the same time as the ordinary Jewish Passover meal. Or, number two, the so-called Joanine chronology, in which the Last Supper takes place an entire day before the ordinary Jewish Passover meal. Now, in the course of writing my new book, Jesus and the Last Supper, just came out from Urban's in, in 2015, I discovered that the situation is not, however, quite so clear-cut. According to some of the most influential Joannine scholars of the 20th century, there are, in fact, what Joachim Jeremias called, quote, traces of the synoptic chronology in the fourth gospel. Uh, consider, for example, some of the following quotations. Uh, the first cluster of these are from commentaries on John or comments about John with reference in particular to the description of the Last Supper in John 13. So here are some quotes. Julius Valhausen. Jesus and his disciples are here still at table, in fact, at the Passover meal, that is, at the Lord's Supper of the Synoptics, in contradiction to John 13, 1, 18, 28, 19, 14. It is idle to shut one's eyes to this contradiction. Rudolf Bultmann, quote, The expression, lying close to the breast of Jesus, is certainly an indication that the meal which is spoken of in John 13, 21 to 30, in contrast to John 13, 2 to 20, is the Passover meal. For on this occasion, reclining at table was obligatory. Raymond Brown, quote, that there are Passover characteristics in the meal, even in John, is undeniable, end quote. C.K. Barrett, the supposed command of Jesus to give to the poor would be particularly appropriate on Passover night. And going into the darkness, Judas went into his own place. So far as the remark is historical, it suggests that the event took place on Passover night, in agreement with the Markan tradition. Then Craig Keener, although Jewish people in Palestine usually sat on chairs when available, they had adopted the Hellenistic custom of reclining uh, at banquets, including the Passover. It, the reclining posture of Jesus and his disciples in John 13, 21, 23, 26, probably implies that John has, after all, revised an earlier Passover tradition. And then again, with regard to uh, the crucifixion, just fast forward, Bolton said this, Certainly it's surprising that no mention is made of the Passover that may well be due to the fact that this story in John 19.31 is derived from a tradition according to which Jesus was crucified on the 15th of Nisan, as in the Synoptics, end quote. In other words, uh, according to some major 20th century scholars, John's Gospel sometimes appears to follow the Synoptic chronology, in which the Last Supper is a Jewish Passover meal, and Jesus dies the day after the lambs were sacrificed. That is, he dies on 15 Nisan. Now, this paper will argue that the suggestion that the Gospel of John contains two contradictory chronologies is ultimately unconvincing, and is based on a misinterpretation of Second Temple Jewish Passover terminology. As we'll see momentarily, in an early Jewish context, the word Passover, Pascha, had at least four definitions. 
In any given case, the exact meaning of the word Passover must be determined by the context. As I hope to show, when John's use of Passover terminology is situated in its first century Jewish context, it becomes clear that the widespread assumption that John depicts the Last Supper as taking place an entire day before the Jewish Passover meal faces serious exegetical difficulties. Instead, I'll suggest that John depicts the Last Supper as a Jewish Passover meal and thereby also indicates that Jesus is crucified the day after the initial Passover lambs were eaten. If correct, this conclusion has direct implications for how the historical Jesus may have interpreted his impending death during the Last Supper. All right, so let's walk through this together. Uh, four definitions of Passover in first century Judaism. In order to see this clearly, it's important first to emphasize that the word Passover, Pascha, had not one, not two, not three, but several different definitions, at least four, in first century Judaism. And consider the following examples, and if you want much fuller discussion, you can see the book. Uh, number one, the Passover lamb. There are lots of texts like Exodus 12, 2 Chronicles 30, and others that speak of, quote, killing the, quote, Passover. Here, the first definition is clearly a reference to the Passover lamb. Number two, the Passover meal. Uh, you have lots of texts like Exodus 12, and Jubilees 49, and Josephus, Antiquities that speak of, quote, eating the Passover. This is clearly a reference to the Passover meal. Number three, and this is where we get into territory more people are unfamiliar with. Uh, the Passover peace offering. Uh, you have several texts that can speak of sacrificing the, quote, Passover and eating it over the course of, quote, seven days. And these offerings are called Pesachim. They're called Passovers, like in Deuteronomy 16, 1 to 3, or 2 Chronicles 35, 7 to 9. Finally, number four, Passover week. Uh, you'll have texts that speak of the seven days of unleavened bread and simply refer to them synonymously as Pascha, as the Passover, like in Josephus' Antiquities. Now notice here that in contrast to the later rabbinic Passover Seder, which didn't involve blood sacrifice in the temple and takes place in one day, the Second Temple Jewish Passover consisted of multiple sacrifices in the temple that took place over the course of an entire week. Because of this, the word Passover had multiple meanings, and they have to be determined by context. Lest there be any doubt about this, the Gospel of Luke itself provides us with evidence of a first century document in which a single text uses multiple definitions of the word Passover. So if you look at your handout there, uh, first quote, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover had to be sacrificed. Luke 22.7, that's clearly a reference to the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Uh, that'd be definition number one. Uh, then again, next quote, where is the guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? Luke 22, 11, that's a reference clearly to the Passover meal eaten on 15 Nisan, definition number two. And then finally, this important one, Luke says that the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Pascha. Luke 22, 1, here we're referring to the Passover week, right, which lasts from 15 to 21 Nisan, that's definition number four. Okay. Now, if the Gospel of Luke could use multiple meanings of Passover in the same Gospel and expect his audience to understand it, then so too the Gospel of John can do the same, especially when we recall that John assumes his audience has a thorough knowledge of the Jewish temple and especially the annual Jewish feasts, right? I mean, scholars recognize that John frames his Gospel around these feasts and that they're very important. In short, in the first century, one could speak of all the realities associated with Passover, the initial lamb, the meal, the peace offerings, the seven-day festival as Passover, without, sorry, without any further qualification. Uh, as a side note here, I'm, I'm Catholic, and in Catholic and Orthodox circles, the same thing's very true of the word Easter. It has a liturgical polyvalence, right? So if I say Happy Easter to you as a Catholic, 
It could be Saturday night for the vigil. It could be Sunday morning for the morning festival. It could be the Tuesday of Easter week. It could even be several weeks into the 49-day Easter season. In any case, you have to determine what that word Easter means by context, right? And, and by the way, the Latin word for Easter is Pascha. It's an Aramaic loan word over into the Latin tradition. So it's, it's just the Passover. That's what we celebrate at Easter. So these linguistic data provided show that John's multiple use of the word Passover coheres quite well with an extant first century <coughs> Jewish festal terminology. So with these definitions in mind, let's turn out of the fourth gospel and see what light they might shed on the Johannine chronology of Jesus' passion and death. Number one, before the feast of Passover means before the Passover meal, John 13, 1. Definition number two. First, uh, when John, the gospel of John says that Jesus knew his hour had come, quote, before the feast of Passover, it doesn't mean before they sacrificed the Passover lambs. That'd be definition one. Instead, John's gospel means before they ate the Passover meal. Now, consider the text in question. Now, before the feast of Passover, here's your handout, prodetes hepportes to Pascha, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 13.1. Now, almost without fail, contemporary scholars assume that Jesus, I'm sorry, that John's expression, the feast of Passover, refers to the day on which the Passover lambs were sacrificed at the 14 Nisan. For example, in his recent defense of John's chronology, Mark Matson writes, and I quote, your hand up, the fourth evangelist then explicitly marks out the chronological progression of the final days so that there's little question that the final meal was not Passover, but was celebrated the day before Passover, that is, on Nisan 13. John's account begins in 13.1 by introducing the meal as taking place, quote, before the Passover. But notice here, Matson leaves out het or taste. It's actually pro de taste, het or taste to Passover. Now, the problem with this interpretation is that in first century Judaism, to my knowledge, the feast, het or te, of Passover does not refer to the day the Passover lambs were sacrificed. The feast always refers to the night the Passover meal was eaten. And I'll just give you two examples here from uh, Numbers and Jubilees. First, Numbers writes this, uh, On the fourteenth day of the first month is the Lord's Passover, and on the fifteenth day of the month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. Right, Numbers 28. And then again, even more clear from Jubilees 49, you move in the Second Temple period. Remember the commandment which the Lord commanded you concerning Passover, that you observe it in its time, on the 14th of the first month, so that you might sacrifice it, that's definition one, right, before it becomes evening, and so that you might eat it during the night on the evening of the 15th, from the time of sunset. That's 15 Nisan. For on this night there was the beginning of what? The feast. Okay, Jubilees 49, 1 and 2. Indeed, in Jewish scripture, the word feast, chag, or Greek, hetorte, is never used for the 14th of Nisan, the day the lambs are sacrificed. Feast is always used for the 15th of Nisan and for the subsequent seven days. This makes sense, of course, if you think about it for a second, because the 14th is a day of fasting, not feasting, right? You're preparing, you're sacrificing the lambs in the temple, and then you feast in the night after sunset. For what it's worth... The later Mishnah is consistent with the biblical evidence and second temple sources I've cited on this point. The day the lambs are sacrificed in the Mishnah is simply referred to as the 14th. Only the 15th of Nisan is called Hamoed, the feast. And that's in Mishnah Pesachim 10.1. Now, the upshot of these data is that when the Gospel of John says Jesus knew his hour had come before the feast of Passover, it cannot mean the day before the lambs were sacrificed, 13 Nisan, like Matson was arguing. 
All the Jewish parallels suggest that John means before the lambs were eaten. In other words, before the Feast of Passover means before the Passover meal. Now, in support of this interpretation, notice that it provides a plausible explanation for the otherwise puzzling fact that the final supper in John, that he immediately goes on to describe, contains several noteworthy parallels with ancient Jewish descriptions of the Passover meal. So these are just a few. Number one, the reclining posture of Jesus and his disciples during the supper. Number two, the dipping of the morsel by Jesus. Number three, the custom of giving something to the poor during a festal meal. That's really important. Tobit does that as well during the Feast of Pentecost in Tobit chapter 2. And then number four, the last minute purchase of something for the feast. Some of the disciples assume Judas is doomed when he goes out before sunset. Now, it's precisely the cumulative weight of these parallels that has led Johannine scholars such as Boltman and Brown, Barrett and Keener to conclude that John's gospel contains uh, traces of a synoptic chronology in which the Last Supper actually was a Jewish Passover meal. And they, they use several uh, texts to, to make that point. Indeed, Rudolf Schnackenberg attempted to explain away these Passover features of the Last Supper in John by identifying them as the ever-helpful, quote, later interpolations. So, however, once we separate John's Passover terminology, I'm sorry, once we situate John's Passover terminology in its first century Jewish context, the theory of contradictory chronologies within the one-fourth gospel, to say nothing of hypothetical interpolations, seems unnecessary. Instead, I'd suggest that a more plausible explanation is that the reason the Last Supper in John looks like a Jewish Passover meal is because the Last Supper in John is a Jewish Passover meal. In fact, John has just told the first century Jewish reader as much when he stated that Jesus knew his hour had come, quote, before the feast of Passover in John 13, 1. In, uh, part 2. To eat the Passover refers to the Passover peace offering. John 18, 28. This definition number 3. Now, despite the widespread assumption to the contrary, when John goes on to state that the Jewish leaders would not enter the Pilate's Praetorium on Friday morning because they wanted to, quote, eat the Passover, John 18, 28, I'd suggest that he's not referring to the initial Passover lamb. That'd be definition one. Instead, he's referring to the Passover peace offering, definition number three, which was eaten on the 15th of Nisan, the day after the initial lambs were sacrificed, and then throughout the seven-day festival. And here's the famous passage. I mean, this is the one that makes everyone think that John clearly has a, distinct, a different chronology in the synoptics. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the praetorium. It was early. So this is Friday morning, right? Uh, they themselves did not enter the praetorium that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Phagosin to Pascha. Now, this verse uh, is the one that leads many interpreters to conclude that John has definitely dated the Last Supper one day before the Passover meal, because it gives the impression that they're going to eat the initial Passover on Friday night after Jesus is dead. However, this is important, it's quite clear that in the Old Testament, in Jewish scripture itself, the language of eating the Passover was not restricted to the initial Passover lamb. Rather, it was used to refer to all of the sacrifices eaten over the course of the seven-day festival. So here's some quotes from uh, Deuteronomy 16, first one. You shall sacrifice the Passover, Pesach, to the Lord your God, from the flock or the herd, at the place which the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it. Right. So this antecedent here is the Passover. You eat no unleavened bread with the Passover, and how, how many days do you eat it for? You eat the Passover for seven days with the unleavened bread. Deuteronomy 16, 2-3. And then again, Second Chronicles. So the people ate the feast for seven days, 
sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And if you tip down a little bit in 2 Chronicles to the next quote in 35, it tells us this. Josiah contributed to the lay people as Passovers, the Pesachim, for all that were present, lambs and kids from the flock to the number of 30,000 and 3,000 bulls. And then Hilkiah, Zechariah, Jehiel, the chief officers of the house of God, gave to the priests four Passovers, the Pesachim, 2,600 lambs and kids and 300 bulls. And then Conaniah also gave to the Levites four Passovers, the Pesachim, 5,000 lambs and kids and 500 bulls. 2 Chronicles 35, 7 and 9. Now notice here that the language of eating the Passover for all seven days and the use of the word Passover for all the sacrifices eaten during those, the week, especially the Shalomim offerings, the peace offerings, is not hidden in some obscure Dead Sea Scroll or Jewish pseudepigraphon. It's coming straight out of the Torah and the Prophets. Okay? That's probably why, if you go a little further down the road, later rabbinic literature also describes the Passover, Pesach, as being eaten, quote, throughout seven days. That's in Mishnah Pesachim 9.5. And a really striking text from the Babylonian Talmud, I know it's later, but this is helpful to see how the rabbis are interpreting the biblical text. There's a commentary on Deuteronomy 6, 16.2-3, and they're asking, what does this mean? So what does the Passover mean in Deuteronomy 16.1-2? The rabbi said, quote, the peace offerings of Passover, the Shalomim Pesach, Babylonian Talmud Zebachim 99b. So, if you take all that back into the first century Jewish context, based on those Old Testament texts in particular, it's perfectly plausible that John's using the biblical language of eating the Passover to refer to the peace offering eaten on 15 Nisan in John 18.28. Now, lest there be any doubt about this, recall that on the level of the gospel narrative here, John has already identified the Last Supper of Jesus with the Feast of Passover, with the Passover meal, both in his explicit statement that Jesus knew his hour had come before the Feast of Passover, and in his description of the Last Supper itself as containing all these Paschal features. Hence, and this is important, it's only by taking the reference to the Jewish leader's desire to eat the Passover out of its narrative context in 1828 that the verse there can be made to refer to the official Passover, the, I'm sorry, the initial Passover lamb. Indeed, given John's prior description of the Last Supper, the only way for Passover in John 18.28 to refer to the initial lamb would be to posit two contradictory chronologies in the one gospel. And that's precisely what led Fellhausen and Boltman and others to make that argument that there are two competing chronologies in the gospel. However, I would suggest that a more plausible explanation, and one that's really rooted in the Jewish Paschal terminology from the first century, is that when John refers to the Jewish leaders wanting to eat the Passover, he's simply using the language of the law and the prophets. Not to refer to the initial Passover lamb that most of us think of when we think of a Passover Seder, but to the, the seven-day festival that was central to the Second Temple period, and to the subsequent peace offerings that were eaten over the course of seven days, and which are called Pesachim, they're called Passovers, in the Old Testament itself. All right, number three, the paraskiwe, or the preparation of Passover, refers to the Friday of Passover week. So John 19, 14, definition number four. Uh, next, when John says that Jesus tried to, okay, when uh, Jesus tried by Pilate on the paraskiwe of Passover, he's not referring to the preparation day for Passover, as some translations suggest, like the NAB and the NRSV. He's referring to the Friday of Passover week. Here's the quote. Pilate brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, and in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the preparation of the Passover, and the Paraskiwe to Pascha. It was about the sixth hour. 
John 19, 13, and 14. The first thing that needs to be said here is this. In early Jewish literature, to my knowledge at least, there's no such thing as, quote, the preparation day for Passover as a kind of technical term. Uh, no such day exists. Uh, it seems to have been created by scholarly commentators on the basis of the material we're finding in John here, without any Jewish parallels to support it. Instead, if you look at the first century text, in particular, the Greek word preparation, paraskue, was simply the standard Jewish name for what we call Friday, right? Because that was the day in which one would prepare, paraskuazo, for the Sabbath, right? It's coming in sunset. Here, I've given you a number of texts that show this. I won't read all of them for the sake of time, but just to hit a few. This is Mark, first quote. When evening had come, since it was preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Paraskue, hoestin pro sabbaton. Joseph Arimathea took courage and went to Pilate. Uh, and then again, you can look down. Look at Josephus. It's the third quote there. The Jews not give bond, need give. I'm sorry. The Jews need not give bond to appear in court on the Sabbath or on the preparation for it. Right? Take pro autes paraskue after the ninth hour. That's from Antiquities. And then the most important one here are the last two quotes. This is, so this is in John himself. John's own gospel uses paraskue twice to simply refer to Friday. So, quote, since it was the preparation, Pereskiwe, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, I'll get back to the Sabbath, there's a great thing, just a sec, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away, John 19.31. And then, so because of the preparation of the Jews, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there, John 19.42. Now, in all these texts, the word preparation is simply a reference to the Jewish Friday, uh, as Boltman himself admits, and this is on your handout, quote, if Pascha can signify the entire seven-day feast, Paraskue to Pascha could mean the Friday of Passover week. Indeed, it is precisely this verse that led Boltman to conclude that the account of Jesus' burial in John is derived from a tradition according to which Jesus was crucified on the day after the lambs were eaten, as in the synoptic. Now, that is, of course, uh, theoretically possible in other words, these conflicting chronologies. But again, allow me to make another suggestion. Perhaps the reason the fourth gospel contains passages in which the crucifixion of Jesus appears to take place on 15 Nisan is because that's the day John's claiming that he was crucified. Finally, before the great Sabbath refers to the, before the sheaf offering of 16 Nisan, John 19.31. The fourth and final point in support of the chronology I've been suggesting is by no means the least significant, though it's definitely the most often overlooked. It's John's fleeting reference to Jesus dying the day before, quote, the great Sabbath in John 19.31. Here's the text. Since it was Friday, I just translated it that way, paraskue, preparation, in order to prepare the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a great day, magale hehemera, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So what is this mysterious great Sabbath? Now, although the common reading assumes here that John's referring to the coinciding of the Sabbath with the Feast of Passover, this doesn't make sense. Uh, as Roger Beckwith points out, and he has a really good book article on this in his calendar chronology uh, text, which I highly recommend. If John had wanted to say that the bodies had to be taken down because that Sabbath was the Passover, he could have easily done so. John's not shy about using Passover terminology in his gospel. By contrast, the expression Great Sabbath makes perfect sense if John is referring to the Sabbath that coincided with the Feast of the Sheaf Offering, which took place on the second day of Passover week, the 16th of Nisan. Uh, because this lesser-known feast is frequently ignored by New Testament scholars, although obviously it's described in the liturgical calendar in Leviticus 23, it'll be helpful just to quote Philo's first-century description. So here you go. This is what the Sheaf Offering today will look like. But within the Feast of Passover, there's another 
feast following directly after the first day. This is called the sheaf, a name given to it from the ceremony which consists in bringing to the altar a, a sheaf of, of the first fruit. This is the first fruit of, of grain. Both of the land which had been given to the nation to dwell in and of the whole earth. That's Philo's special laws, book two. In light of this evidence, a case can be made that when John says Jesus was crucified before the great Sabbath, he's claiming that Jesus was crucified before a Sabbath that coincided with the Feast of the Sheaf Offering, during which special rites were carried out in the temple. Uh, in the words of John Meyer, quote, The adjective great could also be applied to the Sabbath that fell during Passover week, since in Pharisaic tradition it was the day for offering of the sheaves. Now, Meyer's right about this, and he's preceded by Boltman and Brown and Schackenberg and others. And we find yet ourselves with yet another trace of the so-called synoptic chronology in John. In support of Meyer's suggestion, and I'm adding this to his point, notice here that John elsewhere uses the adjective great, megale, to describe a special day within a festival uh, uh, week. He uses it to describe the special day of the water offering during the Feast of Tabernacles. So in John 7, if you back up there, he says, On the last day of the feast, that's in Tabernacles, the great day, Himera te Megale, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, If anyone thirsts, etc., etc. Oh, well, let him come to me because he'll have rivers of living water. So it's the living water there is tied to the water ritual of the Tabernacles feast. So, in other words, just as John uses the great day to refer to the festal offering of the water in the temple during the week of Tabernacles, so too I'm suggesting that he's using the expression the great day to refer to the festal offering of the sheaf of grain in the temple on the Sabbath after Jesus was crucified. Hence, once again, a close reading of the Johannine chronology finds Jesus being depicted as crucified on the day of Passover, I'm sorry, the day after the Passover lambs were eaten. In other words, 15 Nisan, just as in the synoptics. Conclusion. In sum, when the chronological evidence in John is properly situated in its linguistic, liturgical, and literary context, I would argue that there's no good reason to follow Bellhausen, Boltman, and Brown, and others in saying that there are contradictory chronologies or traces of a synoptic chronology in John. It seems to me more likely that some of John's Jewish Passover terminology, that's particular to the Second Temple period, has been misinterpreted by readers who are somewhat unclear about the nature of the Passover sacrifices during the seven-week, I'm sorry, the seven-day festival. The implications of this conclusion for historical Jesus research are twofold. First, the widespread approach to the date of the Last Supper that presents it simply as a choice between synoptic chronology and Johannine chronology is oversimplified, and it needs to be abandoned precisely as that. That's just not what the Johannine commentators themselves are saying. I know that's what all the intro textbooks say, but you look at the commentators, they're saying it's more complicated than that. Second, if my thesis is correct, then we find ourselves in a situation in which all four first century Gospels describe the Last Supper as a Jewish Passover meal. Now, this, of course, doesn't establish the historical plausibility of the chronology. There are other matters to be dealt with. I dealt with them in my book, Jesus and the Last Supper, which I think is nicely discounted right now at the Urban's table. Um, but, uh, but it does mean that the historical Jesus scholars can no longer argue that Jesus didn't interpret his death in light of the Jewish Passover on the basis of the now common idea that the Last Supper was just a, a common, a, a solemn farewell meal. That's, that's become a more pertinent, uh, prominent hypothesis on the basis of the supposed Johannine chronology. Instead, perhaps the reason the Gospel of John contains evidence the Last Supper was a Jewish Passover meal and Jesus was crucified on the 15th of Nisan is because that's, that's what it was and that's when he was crucified. If so, then the Passover character of Jesus' final meal should be taken seriously in any attempt to interpret his words and actions uh, at the Last Supper in their first century Jewish context. And that's what I was trying to accomplish in the book. Thank you very much.
have seven minutes for questions. The floor is open. I could not find any any traditions that that made that particular point. So um, yeah, the, the the this this expression, the great the great Sabbath, was is really a, a singular one. So it, 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 there are, if you can give me more, that'd be great. But the um, well, that's my question because it, yeah, uh, it brings up some doubts about your, your theory. I think because you don't have any parallels that this day was called the great day. And, uh, Why does it bring up doubts about it? What do you mean? Yeah, because we don't have any references that this might be uh, appropriate. Uh, well, remember, the argument's not hanging entirely on the great. That's a corroborative argument. I've already made a cumulative argument on the basis of the terminology you do have in John in 13.1 and then in 18.28. So this is that's just like a little icing on the cake that I think help explains. And otherwise, many scholars admit this expression, great day, is mysterious and enigmatic precisely because we don't have parallels to illuminate it. Well, so I it's a cumulative very, argument there. Yeah, I, I find very striking the parallel to John, in, in John 7 when you say that the, uh, the, the last day of the feast, the feast is the yeah. great day. Uh, but doesn't it simply mean the most important day of this feast? So, mm -hmm. and if you you know put this on the uh, Passover. Well, does it mean that? How do you know it means that? I mean, that's the day of the water ritual. That's one of the things that makes it the great days. So, yes, it's the last day of the feast, but this was this was a momentous occasion when they do the water libation in the temple, right? Everyone's going up to the temple to celebrate the water libation. So you have a pilgrimage to the temple precisely for that day. Remember, whereas the feast is a seven-day period, you don't have the same degree of activity going on. And I actually think that's why John's saying this in 19. So let me let me make it a little clearer. What's John's point? They needed to get the bodies off of the crosses, right? Because that Sabbath was a great day. So what's the, what's the implication there? Well, on that Sabbath, namely the day of the sheaf offering, you're not going to stay resting in your homes like on an ordinary Sabbath. You're going up to the temple for the offering of the sheep. So if there are bodies hanging on the crosses, that's going to be a scandal, right? I mean, you've got the, you've got the curse in Deuteronomy 21. So the great day implies a particular day where everyone's going to the temple to celebrate the solemn ritual of the sheep offering, which is a big deal, especially in an agricultural context, right? That this is the first offering of grain, it's being to, given to God. Uh, and so although we don't think about the sheep offering as that important, uh, I think it would have been important in the first century AD, and it would have been absolutely unthinkable for there to be bodies hanging on the crosses. So I was trying to contextualize that. I'd love it if we could find more parallels for it, if you can provide some too. But I think in the absence of them, the sheep offering is a plausible suggestion for that, especially when John's been telling you up to this point what the other dates were. I'm sorry. Too long. Go ahead. Yes, I'm sorry. Right. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the paper. Oh, thanks. What about the multiple references we get in, in the death of Jesus and John mm -hmm. uh, that link it to the death of the Passover lamb? This is a great question. Yeah, so what about the references in John, like, for example, not a bone of, John, of him shall be broken? That's a great question. So um, I don't actually think that this in any way takes from the idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, or that he's a Passover lamb. Because for a first century Jew, Passover isn't just the first day. So the fact that he's crucified on 15 Nisan is no less Paschal 
than if he were crucified on 14 Nisan. He certainly is the lamb that was slain, right, and whose blood is going to be poured out. But the whole feast is Passover for them in the first century. And that's one of the things I'm trying to really stress here. This is the second temple conception of it. So I think this uh, works well with that. I don't think it takes away from it at all. Just like, think about it, the standard view of the synoptics. The standard view of the synoptics is that Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper to identify himself in some way with the Passover lamb. Even if in the synoptics he doesn't die at the same time as the lamb, the identification still works. AJ? Oh, you have a question. Who else? Yes, sir. Just to add to what you just said, we believe that Jesus is the you know, before sacrifice as well, but we don't see him dying on the you know, before. Sure, yeah, so the letter of the Hebrews can, can operate with a Yom Kippur soteriology or a Christology without necessitating that he die on the exact same day. That's, that's a good point. Okay. Oh, wow. okay. Are you saying that there, there's a chronological difference between synoptic and John, but that John was also a Passover? Oh, no, no, I'm actually saying they have the same chronology and that we've just misinterpreted it. I'm saying you have four Gospels that are saying the Last Supper is a Passover meal and Jesus crucified the day after the lambs were eaten and we have been misinterpreting because we're not familiar enough with the Second Temple Passover terminology. Why do you think the sheep then, when it's not that and it's not that? I don't, what do you mean needed to be the sheep? I'm not sure what that means. It, it, in other words, that would be the natural progression of the chronology. You have the day the lambs were sacrificed on Friday. Um, Isn't yeah. that What's that? Isn't what the Passover? Oh yeah, the day the lambs are sacrificed is, the, is Passover. Pesach is 14 Nisan. But the feast of Passover begins on 15 Nisan. That's what I was trying to stress. It's, a, it's I know it can get tricky to make this, unless you've experienced it liturgically, to keep these distinctions in mind, especially when you throw in the mix, days changing and sunset, right? I mean, but it, it's a clear chronology in terms of Thursday, the lambs are sacrificed. They eat Thursday night. Friday is the is the next day of the feast. Jesus is crucified. And then Saturday is the sheaf offering. That's how I think all four Gospels describe it. All right? Thanks so much. Before I let you off oh, the oh, I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you were calling me time. All right? Before I let you off the hook. Oh, no. Here's the devil's advocate again. Yes, please. In your, your, your conclusion point two, you say, you write that all four first century Gospels provide evidence that the Last Supper was a Jewish Passover meal. But you actually said... All four first-century gospels describe that the Last Supper, mm-hmm. and, uh, that the Last Supper was a Jewish Passover meal. Now, now that's a that's a, a huge. I'll take either one. Do, do, you think it's a huge thing? difference? No, I don't think so. When, You've got four gospels testifying it was a Latin, it was a Passover meal. I consider that evidence as well as evidence or, or description. I didn't mean to make anything substantial out of that distinction. No, I'm just asking about the, the the relationship between between the gospel descriptions and what you actually can claim about the historical Jesus. Oh, well, yeah, so yes, I'll be very clear. Yes, as first century Greco-Roman biographies, I think these four texts are claiming that, yeah, the Last Supper historically was a Passover meal. And I think there are reasons to, to accept that on a historical basis. And that's why the book is... This 500 pages and I only had 25 minutes here. So yeah, I actually go into all that in depth in the book using historical argumentation from contextual plausibility and coherence and whatnot, but I didn't have time to do that here. So, okay. thank you very much.